Welcome, guys, to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Matt Slarchik and Peter Fendero. What's up, guys? This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nursing topics one conversation at a time. Yes, we do. How you doing today, Peter? Doing good. The weather sucks here. Chicago, cold. Actually, it's warmer today than it was yesterday, surprisingly. All the snow melted. It was a bad, bad um, Halloween this year. It snowed. It's cold. I didn't get any good candy. I got a bunch of musk and tears. Did you go trick-or-treating? No, I didn't go trick-or-treating. Did or did you turn off the lights so nobody comes in? Well, I live in a condo, so hopefully no one's knocking. If someone's knocking, then it's probably some kind of emergency, you know? Like a plumber. Like a plumber, which I had to use recently, but, you know, whatever. It's behind me. So your house is getting worked on? Yeah. It's going to, I mean, it's a weekend, so no one's going to work on it, but. Do you have know. things all over the place in the house? Just the cabinets. And yeah, stuff's out of the cabinets, obviously, but, you know, it's my problem, not nobody else's, so. All right. People want to know your problem. Yeah. Sharing even, it to the world. I don't even want to know my problems. Keep them to yourself. <laughs> All right, guys. So today, or actually, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Check us out on Facebook. Check out our stories. Check us on YouTube. We are being very active on social, so keep up with us. And if you like what we do, share, because that's the way we grow. Sharing is caring. And that's the way we expand. So don't forget to do that for us, and we appreciate it. Yeah, so episode 33 or 32? 33. 33. 33. Yeah, I think it's 33, right? Makes sense. So today's episode, we're going to talk about standing desks, see if they're actually worth buying and worth you know, contributing this money to, and see if they're actually even healthier than just sitting in a normal desk. We're also going to talk about how to survive your first year as a nurse. A lot of first year nurses struggle. Usually they end up quitting within their first year, so we'll dabble on the statistics and see what you guys could do to you know survive your first year as a nurse. First year was awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome in the case of being unpredictable, stressful, anxious, not knowing what's going on. But it created the nurse that I am today. And so it so it did it for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you look back and you're like, well, I remember when I didn't know how to do this. And I was scared of doing this. But now I just do it like it's no big deal. And I think one, pe- one people have to, people have to understand that failure is the greatest teacher and it'll teach you so much. So you shouldn't be looking at using this like, okay, I'm going to get all these tips or I'm going to try to get all these answers online and ask all these people and try to be the best nurse. Like expect failure because it'll teach you and don't take it negatively. I think that's like the best, best piece of advice before we get into it. Yeah, exactly. And imagine if you always did everything you did correctly. You would never learn. There there would always be one way of doing things and no one would ever learn a different perspective or shortcuts or, you know, you wouldn't know how to do things more efficiently just because if you're doing the same thing over and over again in the same way, there's no room for learning. It's like, how do you cope with um, a person passing away? You could read a book about it, but till you actually physically experience it and feel emotionally and spiritual, whatever it might be, how you feel, that's how you start learning. That's how you start coping. Yeah, I've said it better myself. So these standing desks, um, I always thought that they would work. I thought they burn a lot of calories. I think I think it'd be cool to have one myself, but I don't spend enough time behind the computer to do so. Yeah, especially now, it's like like trending. It's been trending for, for a little bit. And these things are expensive. Some of them cost like $1,000. And like we're saying that, yeah, standing desks are better and, and all that. And, you know, there's, this is something new. So there isn't a whole bunch of research that proves standing desks are more efficient or whatever. There's... Types of research that are focused more on sitting compared to standing, but I feel like a lot of offices are not moving towards that. Just, you know, maybe it has a potential to make the business more effective or more productive, and maybe it'll make them healthier. Who's labeling um, that smoking is almost as closely associated as sitting down? Is that a Mayo Clinic that was making this um, claim? There's, yeah, so if you, if you Google, like, sitting for long periods of time, you'll you'll get... Like the first few results, slink, smoking is like new sitting, new sitting. So not it's not saying it's as bad as sitting, or sorry, not saying that smoke smoking is as bad as sitting, or vice versa. They're saying that the smoking or that fuck, I'm confused. They're saying the sitting is like smoking. So something that we do all the time, and they're kind of saying that it's like addictive. So if we do it for a long time, it leads to these negative outcomes. They're not saying that you'll get lung problems, things like that. They're saying that this is something that a lot of people are doing, and. They're saying that they're not informed that sitting is bad for you. Just like back then, people that smoked, they were informed that it was bad for you. And we're not even realizing how much we're sitting down to begin with when it comes to driving and sitting and eating. And if you work a nine to five or whatever, it might be like a like a business job, you're sitting a lot. So 
that's it's crazy that we switched from a society that was on our feet, always like go getting, and our parents were like that. They always were out doing things, and now we're very stagnant. Mm. And yeah, because back then, for like our parents or people that came before us, being productive was going out and physically doing things. Now we have internet; you can be productive on your computer, on your laptop. You don't necessarily have to go to the grocery store to pick up something. You could just order it online, have it delivered to you. You could shop on Amazon, they get delivered to you as well. And I don't gotta walk to your house to communicate with you. I could FaceTime with you. I could put you on webcam, Skype, all, all that jazz, Zoom. So, you know, we could walk less because we don't have to walk anymore because we have technology that provides these services for us that, we're, that we could literally live at home and we could still work at home. We could communicate from home. We could do everything from at home if you really wanted to. It almost sounds like walking or moving around is a is friction mm. to time. So we try to eliminate friction, which is that walking and just make everything more accessible. Yeah, that's true. Like, let's say... You know, I want to go to your house and you live five miles away and I don't have a car. I would probably Uber. Or even if you live probably two miles, I would still probably Uber. You know, I would rather pay that $10 or $5 and Uber myself there instead of walking 15, 20 minutes. And I'm guilty of that probably mm-hmm. myself. But in those six pillars that we talked about, it tells you to work on NEAT, which is those non-exercise movements yeah. like walking and things. Yeah, very true. So if we're talking about sitting. According to Mayo Clinic, there's a list of negative consequences that research has shown have been attributed to sitting. So sitting for greater than eight hours a day, prolonged sitting, causes obesity, increased blood pressure, high blood sugar, excess body fat around the waist, which we know contributes to diabetes and and unhealthiness in general, and elevated cholesterol levels. And that's people that sat eight hours a day with no physical activity. So we as nurses, we at least are able to get up, which is awesome. But I do catch myself sometimes on those days that I sometimes sit a lot. And it's not because I'm not busy, but it's just I do my task and I could go back and sit. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I feel like my charting is rushed. I feel like if I have more time for charting, my charting is that rushed and it's probably more detailed compared to if I have a busy shift where I'm moving around a lot, walking around, I kind of tend to, I guess, fall off on my charting a little bit. I'm still charting the main points, but I probably wouldn't chart as much as I do if I have an extra you know, hour or so to, to chart. Do you ever stand and grab like a wow, like the computer on wheels, just to kind of switch things up? Or are you always sitting behind a computer and charting? I'm usually always sitting behind a computer and charting, but there's times where I pick up the wow, like sometimes like my back hurts sometimes, or if I have like a sore back from the gym, and sitting is uncomfortable sometimes, you know, when, when your back is sore, I would use the use the wow and, and stand, or I would just, usually what I would do is just circle the unit a few times, just to move my feet around. And wow is um, workplace on wheels for those that don't know. Yeah, we call it cows, computer on wheels, but then I guess the patient got offended that we thought that we're calling her a cow or him a cow. So oh now, we, now we just call them computers on, on wheels. So we can't abbreviate anymore, I guess. Sensitive people. Okay. So the reason why sitting is bad on a physiological level is not only does it um, tighten up the back, but it tightens up the um, hip flexors, the lower back, which could cause um, a weaker back, disc problems in the future. It weakens the glutes and it weakens the core. Because it's not being engaged. And sitting in general isn't natural for us. No, and especially if you have like back problems, back issues, and the fact that you're sitting and your hamstrings are, are uh, like you said, flexed. So they're, they're constricting. So they're kind of, it's like, it's like compressing your spine, right? And that's what causes sciatica pain to, to flare up a lot of times. And people that have back issues, they can't sit for a very long time. Because when you're standing, you're standing up straight and you're kind of, um, you're, you're tall. You're not as constricted on your spine as you are sitting. That's true. And also it depends what kind of posture you have because that affects things a lot too and it causes unnecessary pain. Right. Yeah, so, you know, Mayo Clinic told us these these negatives about, you know, sitting for long times, but... They, they told us, they they called us. They, they called, called us, a couple yeah. nurses. First, they also Mayo Clinic call and this is, this is what you're going to say. Hey, PD, man, this is, yeah. No, but they did a few studies and they, they searched all the research and they came up with these negatives that we just mentioned a few minutes ago. But a lot of these studies, they failed to examine other aspects of people's lives. So they just examined sitting compared to standing. So they didn't examine how athletic somebody was or what kind of job they have if they walk around a lot in a job or if they don't or what they do outside. Because not many of us sit for eight hours straight. You know, we usually get up, you know, if you go, you might sit at a desk for a while and so you're doing real estate or you're um, an assistant or receptionist or whatever. You might sit, but you still got to move around, walk to cop here, walk up, get your lunch. Not just you're sitting there all the time. So we are getting physical activity. So... On the other hand, a lot of studies show that if you exercise for an, about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, you counteraffect all those negatives that are attributed to standing for eight hours a day. Okay. So let's say you're sitting for eight hours a day, but then you're going to the gym for an hour, hour, 15 minutes. 
you basically have no negatives you're, to you're the sitting. You're counteracting the, yeah. the sitting. Good. So it has, you know, and this is moderate intense activity. So it's not crazy. So this, what's considered moderate and intense, it could be mowing the lawn, like heavy cleaning, washing the floors, vacuuming, window washing, or a brisk walk, 10 to 12 miles an hour. And that's kind of a brisk, brisk, walk, brisk walk, 10 to 12 yeah. miles per hour. Yeah. 10 to 12, I'm freaking speeding, dude. Really? I, I don't think so. It's not fast. A brisk walk, 10 <laughs> miles. Yeah. Peter, hear yourself. In an hour. In an hour. Yeah, 10 miles per hour. That's not very fast. 10 miles is running. I'm oh. taking I'm taking to a treadmill today. <laughs> guys, do you guys hear this kid? In an hour. You got, I got for sure walk 10 miles in an hour. Oh, 10. No, you're talking about the pace. A brisk yeah. walk, 10 to 12 miles per hour. Yeah. But the speed of 10 miles per hour is you sprinting. Go. No, it's not, it's not sprinting. It's okay. We're gonna we're gonna figure out this afterwards. I'm letting you know that this is no. Sprinting. It's not very fast. Me running ten miles per hour is me booking it on a damn treadmill. No bro. way. No way. Yes. No, it's not. I don't believe you. Three point five is me briskly walking. You like, think so? Like I'm walking faster. Four miles per hour. I'm like in the phase of going into a light jog. I don't think so. It's okay, Peter. Um, what? No, I don't, I don't believe that. I, think, I don't think this is that fast. Ten to miles an hour. It's okay. Let's keep, let's, let's say, keep moving on. If I could run a mile, let's say eight minutes. But we're not talking about times. We're talking about oh, the shit, speed but if I could do a mile, running. If I could do a mile in, in eight minutes, 10 miles would take me 80 minutes. That's more than an hour. Yes. I think I might have wrote this wrong in that case. You did. That's I okay. for sure did. Yeah, never mind. Not, definitely not 12, 12 miles an hour. Peter's case. notes are a little bit off today. It's okay. We figured it out. Maybe on it was the one or two. I don't know. Maybe it's kilometers an hour. Just a brisk walk. 3.5 <laughs> miles. <laughs> That's considered a brisk to walk? Four, yeah. Okay, for sure. Me yeah. personally, I'm 5'10. 10 to 12 miles an hour. So, one thing I liked about this study or that what Mayo Clinic said is, I always thought that standing would lead to like more calorie burn. Uh, after looking at Mayo Clinic's um, little research here, sitting burns 80 calories an hour, and standing burns 88 calories an hour. So there's not much difference when it comes to the health benefits of burning more calories standing up. Yeah, there's really, really isn't it. That's why it goes in with, if you exercise for at least an hour, you counteracted the, you know, the, the negative effects. Yeah. And I would, I would imagine that the reason why I'd get a standing desk is to burn more calories, but there's really not much of a significant difference. There really isn't. Maybe if you're a little on a heavier side, maybe you'll burn a little more calories just because you have more weight on you. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you're getting 90 to 95, which will be 15. There'll be, there'll be difference, big difference. But in general, it's not you're not burning, burning that much more calories. Eight calories, that's what? In 10 hours, you're burning, only burning 80 more. That's what? Like a quarter of a chicken nugget? A quarter of a chicken? I have no idea how much... Chicken nuts have calories. Probably like a good hole. I think so. And then reducing back pain. I think that's the most important one is just mobility in general, guys. If you want to do like that 10-minute rule where I used to do that in nursing school, um, 50 minutes of hard concentration work when it comes to studying, sitting down on my ass, 10 minutes of a break when it comes to phone, stretching, going for a walk. Like if you work in the office, like move around, whatever. Do the figure eight with your hips. Just get all that mo mobility going. And I like that rule, just like for the eyes, you know, the 21, like look at something every 10 minutes, 21 feet away, or is it 20? And then look something like three feet away, just so you're helping your uh, muscles switch up and um, relax. Yeah, I do that at uh, work a lot of times with like the eyes. I don't even know where that you brought it up. I do tend to look at the screen for a little bit, but I do tend to look at a few things. I tend to naturally because I read that study before when I was in school and I've been doing it ever since. And now I kind of do it like subconsciously. Mm-hmm. But now, now that you brought it back to my attention, I realized. Ask me where I learned it. Where'd you learn it? I was watching the History Channel about snipers, mm. and that's what snipers do, man. Yeah, Daily, yeah. they um, exercise your eye because imagine looking through a lens constantly. Your eye is actually, I don't know, I think it's a narrowed, and it, the shape of the eye is literally changed and it strains it. Mm. So they take a diff, uh, a break and they look at something from a distance, then look at their thumb, and they're helping their um, eye change shape which helps them reduce strain and things like that yeah that makes sense i wonder if um you know how kids look at screens for a long time and that's might be a reason why they have glasses now earlier on than they than that before squinting or doing this it's all it's all bad okay yeah but person with this whole back pain i could attest to that just because like i hurt my back at work a while ago and sometimes i get like this, this echo you know annoys me so usually if i sit probably for more than 15 20 minutes i probably got to stand up and like walk around or at least stretch i suggest um, um, before when we had um, well now we have a different different staff and there's before we had some flow cell come by and at three o'clock in the morning we always do like a like a power like a power hour we call it power hour but it was only like five minutes it wasn't like an hour where we just do like some yoga poses and like stretch 
and everyone was able to touch our toes at, at, at the end of this like three month thing. So that is cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But now we have some nurses that left and now we really don't do it anymore. It kind of fell off. Okay, but I can't touch your toes anymore. <laughs> yeah, but it, and it kind of fell off. But usually I try to make my way around just because like I said, if I sit for too long, my back hurts and it just bothers me and then I get kind of grumpy and, and stuff like that. That's why it's it's a pain in the ass for me if I got to catch up on my charting, if I got to sit for like an hour after my, my shift to catch up on charting because then I get comfortable because I'm sitting and charting and uh, my, my back hurts, but I just want to finish because I want to go home. So, yeah. so you think standing desks are worth it? Yeah, I was going to summarize this one up. Mm. I think standing de desks are cool. Benefit-wise, uh, if you are somebody that sits a lot, it could be good for you. Or maybe you get like a yoga ball instead of a chair, just you're kind of working on your... I know somebody that has the one has that as a chair, helps with posture, mobility, just kind of moving around. So the bottom line is get movement in your life if you sit a lot. Yeah, these desks, you know, they cost 200 to $1,000. There's some of them that cost like three grand on, on Amazon. Do I, yeah, do, really think it's, do we really think it's worth it? I mean, probably not. I feel like it's more beneficial to get a gym membership and hit a treadmill for, for an hour or something like that. But if you're really big health nut, I mean, you could do it. You know, if you if you get sciatic on your back hurts for, for sitting more than ten minutes, that would probably be beneficial too. Who knows? Decompress the spine. What if you get what if you get varicose veins from standing too much? True. And then you need those compression socks. Yeah, stockings. True. So yeah, no one tells you about that. You know, no, no one, one says, does. "Hey, standing a long times varicose veins." Nurses get them all the time. But we'll sell them when you need it. Mm -hmm. There you go. Standing desk plus you know compression socks from from um, a couple of nurses. <laughs> Coming soon. So how to survive your first year as a nurse, it's something that no one will tell you how to really do. And there is no right way to be a nurse your first year. You just have to go out there, float or sink, experience everything you have to, ask questions, learn from other people. Like it's a, it's a game of learning, which is so awesome. Yeah, there's no special, you know, script or things you got to follow, how you should interact with each patient, how you should treat everything. It's just like Matt said, a day-by-day -day approach. You treat somebody with the same... You, Someone might come up with the same issues, but you might treat them a little differently. Their plan of care might be a little different from somebody else's. And why we're talking about this topic right, right now is because we did some research and we found that majority of nurses quit nursing within their first year. Like the turnover rate is about 20% wow. within their first year. So 20% of nurses, it's over 20, it's like 22 or something like that, where 20% of nurses leave nursing their, their first year because of the stress and they can't really handle, handle their job. So we're going to try, hopefully try and figure out what's going on and maybe give you some tips for you guys. So. And I've seen it in hospitals, even different ones that mm -hmm. I've, um, I like, you know, keep up with other nurses where they work. Like, yeah, man, hospitals cannot keep the nurses for some reason. Like when you first started out, do you have the same staff still? No. I've been in that ICU for two years. Literally the whole night shift is different, mm -hmm. almost. It's crazy. Yeah. And I've been at my place for a little over two years as well. And we almost have a completely different staff. Like for us, turnover rate is like, six months to a year it's ridiculous like we always always have new nurses and there's like waves where we're fully staffed that we're short we're fully staffed that we're short because people tend to either one get stressed out just because of um the thinking that needs to needs to be done and the acuity of this patient where they where they leave for a more cushiony job you could say or it's just you know the unit they just don't like the environment of, of the unit which is completely understandable i mean not everybody's going to fit in their unit but turnover rates super high for us and you know that's kind of how, how it goes it's kind of a we kind of expect a high turnover rate. I don't I don't like the turnover rate for the sake of always dealing with new people and it's not cost effective for the hospital, but the power to them that they realize this is not where they want to work and they're making a change about it. So that it's one thing that's good, but it is bad because it shouldn't be happening like this. Like why why are nurses leaving? But it's we talk about it too, man. The unions, we talk about short staffing. I've been getting triple these past two weeks here and there it wasn't three icu patients thank god but it was like you know an overflow that could be you know becomes hectic mm -hmm. doing admission and everything at night so it sucks and it wants me it forces me to leave too sometimes and want change and that's what i'm doing yeah, but, yeah. true you might have a full complement of nurses but if like four out of your seven nurses are you know new it's you doing your work and plus you can be there helping them out so you're gonna have to you know be the resource nurse you know, to talk them through what's going on, to explain, you know, to answer their questions, which I'm okay with. It just becomes cumbersome sometimes when you're having a busy night and you still got to, you know, answer questions and kind of help people think through, you know, the patient's issues and hopefully they come up with the, with the conclusion. And because you become new, like you're a new grad because this is your first year, those first couple months when you're on orientation or weeks, make sure you have an awesome preceptor and like don't forget to like ask questions and just 
anything you could possibly learn about. Like that is your time just for you. The hospital is paying another nurse just to sit and watch you like completely take advantage of that. A lot of people are like, okay, well, I'll just take one patient instead of two and the other nurse will take it and they don't care to check up on the other patient. Like just get in there and stick your nose in there to learn anything you possibly can. If there's a procedure or someone's putting in your chest tube, go there, you know, like get get immersed in it. Like that's like the thing that you should be doing. Yeah, don't get discouraged to do anything or to ask any kind of questions. And we have this idea where you're going to fit everything in 13 weeks. So you're going to see everything in the 13 weeks, which is, you know, it's not going to happen. Like I said before, patients are different no matter if they come up with the same issues. You're not going to see everything in those 13 weeks. So try to see as much as you can. And just so you're kind of a little bit, little bit prepared. And even getting off orientation, I feel like I still didn't know anything when I came off orientation. I feel like I was still learning things right off the bat, even things that I have seen multiple times because you don't have that backup anymore. You kind of got to go got to go in and do it yourself. And then if you fuck up, then you kind of bring in somebody to help you out. But you're the one initially doing all these things, like starting an IV. You're not, you're not going to have a ask a nurse, hey, can you watch me start, start this IV? No, you're just going to go in and try it a couple of times if you fail, then you ask for help. Yeah. You kind of got to grab the bull by the horns. Sometimes it sucks when we get called sometimes from the floor. It's like, hey, start an IV. And then you ask them, like, did you try? Oh, no, no, their hands are puffy. But try, you know, that's yeah. the whole point behind it. We have just like a different culture where I previously worked technically now. But, um, but yeah, it, that it's just, yeah, you should be trying. That's the whole point of growing, you know? Yeah, like, what would you do in an emergency? Like, what if I can't get down there? And what if it takes me half an hour to get there? And what if this person needs an IV bed? Even though you're not confident in yourself and you tried, hey, what if you got it? Then you wouldn't have to be waiting half an hour for Matt to come down to, you know, put it in for you. you know, so, so at least try, make an effort. Nursing is like this dance of becoming like self-sufficient. And the longer you work, the more self-sufficient you are. Like look at these ETOA patients, like there's no formula to give them Ativan and how much you should give and how often. There's a MAR order and there's that CWAT scale that rates persons alcohol withdrawals. But dude, you're literally the one that's in charge of thinking what you should be doing. Right. And sometimes we know best and we need something more. We should be pushing this often. Like it's, it's all assessment. It's all common sense. It's all thinking. And then it's all using your past experiences and then applying them to this scenario, but you're always making a tweak because never as, as a patient is never the same. Yeah. Yeah. We have these core measures for like strokes and, you know, STEMIs and things like that, but you can't, there, you can't make core measures for everything. It's not a one size fits all approach. Like we keep saying, we got to keep doing things. All right. So we'll hop into these, these tips for you guys. So first one is you won't know everything and that's completely okay. Even when you got off orientation, even even if you've been a nurse for a year, you're coming on your year, especially if you've been there for less than a year, like you're not going to know anything. You're barely going to even touch the surface. So it's completely okay to ask questions. You might have those nurses that, you know, say that they've been there for 20 years, they've seen everything. They might have a question for a new grad. Like what if there's a new charting system? You know, what if there's a new protocol in place that the, you know, the nurse, that ever do to everybody? What if there's a new way to put in IVs that they're implementing? The nurse has been there for 20 years, it might be new to her. It might be new to you, to, to, to you as well, but the fact that you're both there when it's being implemented, it's technically it's both new to both of you guys. You know, and so don't be afraid to ask questions. Like we're nurses, we're there to help everybody, and I don't mind getting asked questions. Like, yeah, sometimes I might find it like annoying or whatever because maybe I'm busy, but I'm still gonna answer the question for you. I'm still gonna you know help you help you to get to that answer. So it's completely okay. And the point is to always grow on top of like what you're asking. So like once you ask some general questions. Maybe you could use what you learned to kind of figure out the answer that you already have. Yes, asking questions is good and you won't know everything, but sometimes you could use your little experiences and keep learning and keep adding on. That's why I like to carry, um, me personally in the ICU, I, I bought um, a critical care booklet mm -hmm. and it has all the procedures, tests, labs, what to do when, like troubleshooting the vent. And I used to always like try to self-read on top of asking questions, of course. Like there was this one nurse that was, like in her 60s and she was so intelligent, man. I literally try to extract information from her like a sponge. Mm -hmm. But I didn't learn hearts from her. That was the only thing I wish I did. But it's okay, there'll be time for that. I feel like a lot of nurses shy away from asking questions because they feel they're gonna be judged for asking questions. We know you're a new grad. We know it's, you've been there for less than a year. We're completely okay with answering questions. I'd rather have you ask a question sooner than later. Or they have you say, Hey, you know, MAPS, blood pressure is like, you know, systolics are in the 80s. Think it'd be a good idea for me to start Levo? Yeah, go ahead and start it. Compared to, hey, um, 
my pressure, blood pressure is 40s over, over 10s. I didn't start to leave because I didn't think I had to. And now, you know, we're calling the code. Yep. You know. What about you right now, you being three years as a nurse? Do you still ask questions? Oh, yeah, all the time. And so do I. Yeah, sometimes I ask questions, even though I know the answer to. I still ask them and be like, hey. Confirmation? Yeah, it's confirmation. And I probably overdo that. But just, I don't know why, I, I, just, I just do it, you know. And it's okay to over, you know, confirm or whatever. You know where I do it all the time? It's funny. When I am drawing a tighter, not a tighter, uh, type and cross. Mm. And basically for type and cross, meaning we're trying to find out what the blood type is for the patient so they could get blood. It expires after four days. So you have to do it every four days. Sometimes I forget what where to label, what they want us to write because it's very specific. Mm. They want like the blood band ID number. They want the initial. They want the time and date. Sometimes I forget. So I always confirm and ask that. Because there was this one time that I missed something and he made me redraw everything. Okay. This guy in the lab, man, mm. such a dick. Yeah. And it happens. Mm. And I get it. It's uh, for patient safety. I'm not right. mad at him, but. Yeah, same with the type of screams. When a fir patient first comes in, you need to get like two of the pink tubes compared to if it's there, like a repeat one. We always need one. And I'm, I always make sure, like, hey, this is a new patient. I got to get two of the, the pink tubes right for type of screen. Yeah, you got to get two of them. Yeah, it's good. I know I supposed to get two, but just, you know, just validation. Just to confirm. Just to get maybe some changed. I mean, I know it didn't, but, you know, just habit, I guess. But it does happen, even mm -hmm. like, um, when you're drawing a lactic and sometimes it's a respiratory one and sometimes it's a lab one and it depends when you're calling like the code sepsis. So those things sometimes still kind of like confuse me because I don't do it often mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, next one guys is having a bad shift does not make you a bad nurse. You know, for all the bad shifts you're going to have in your career, there's hundreds of ones that are going to be great. Like you're going to touch someone so much lives. You're going to touch so much patients lives and their families where you shouldn't have the bad days ref reflect on you as that's you as a nurse. Like, you are not your bad days. You are, are your good days as a nurse. And I feel like a lot of times nurses take it to heart, like a bad shift. And, you know, you shouldn't. Or they, or they bring you home. And then, so then Yeah, and then everyone kind of suffers from it. And you see nurses that, you know, they had a bad shift last shift. Now it's been two weeks. And they're still kind of, you know, kind of a little bit frazzled. They're second-guessing their, like, they're second-guessing their care. They're asking you more questions, which is okay to ask questions. But it's hard. Some nurses have a hard time getting over this. Like, you're going to make mistakes. Shit's going to go go south. And you're not going to be able to control it at some points. And it, that's okay. It does not show, you know, your, your true nursing competence, you, you could say. Because some patient deteriorate without you doing anything. You can provide the best care of your life, and someone might still deteriorate. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's why it's, it's really important to not become outcome dependent. Meaning, I understand you want to go to work, and I know you want to save this person's life and make them feel better. But if you make that the center of your shift all the time, meaning this person has to survive or he has to get better because sometimes people escalate, man. And mm -hmm. you have those three shifts in a row where every single day of that same patient just keeps going down the shitter. You can't do anything about it. And we can't become outcome dependent. We're there for family support. We're there for the patient, but everything is out of our hands sometimes. And that's what you mean. You can't take that shit home because it messes with you, man. And we talked about how you know, nursing suicide suicide is on the rise because we are we work at a, such a stress environment, and we don't know how to unplug as nurses. Sometimes we take it home, man. Right. We do, especially your like new grad nurses where your first year, like yeah, you're gonna have a. I'm sorry to say, but you're gonna have a lot of shitty moments as your first year as a nurse because you're starting to learn things. You're gonna make a few mistakes. You're gonna give them a metoprolol when you should have held it because, you know. Uh, the heart rate was like 55, you know, the order says hold it less than 60, but you still gave it. And now he's like braiding in the 40s. He's lightheaded, dizziness. And that's okay. You know, like maybe you need a little bolus. Maybe you can get at atropine. Like things happen. And that's how you learn. Now you're going to gonna know, hey, maybe I should have held it for next time. Yeah. Or I've had a few days where like I rethought my career. I'm like, damn, could I really, really handle being a nurse? Like this patient took a shit on me and I was there sitting in the car. I'm like, damn, could I handle this? Because I was like super stressed. I was like, I was like, what the hell, did I do something wrong? I didn't. I know I didn't do something wrong, but you're still like second-guessing all your movements you, you did that day. Like, is something going to come back on me? Like, like what are they, they going to find in the code that I, you know, didn't do compressions hard enough or, you know, or they would not bag them quick enough or whatever. It, but you can't have to dictate. Like, we're all going to have those thoughts multiple multiple times. Like, there's been a handful of times where I was like, damn, you know, should I have been a nurse? Should I, should I have picked this? And, you know, I just, you know, forgot about it. You know, I told myself I could either, one, keep being a nurse and just get over this because this is going to happen once in a while, or I could switch careers because it's not good for anybody. So, you know, you should, like I said, you shouldn't have your bad days dictate you it, as a nurse. It's all about perspective. And I remember my first, when my first year when I had my first code, bro, it was, 
on Christmas Eve and I was leaving change of shift and dude, she just like coded, man. And it's like, you feel, and it was on Christmas Eve. I don't know, just everything that happened that day. I was just like, I felt like shit, man, because the family came in in the morning on Christmas Eve. I have chills right now, look. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to give report and do we're co- the family walks in and we're coding the freaking patient, dude. Like imagine walking in to the hospital on Christmas Eve saying hello and they're freaking doing chest compressions on your mom. She's just bawling her eyes out on the floor and like security comes in and, oh man, I have chills. And we didn't save her, man. That sucks. And I took it personally and I dealt with it for a couple of days. You know, I didn't like cry or anything, but man, it made me feel bad. And that's why the whole outcome, man, we just can't do that, guys, because it's going to literally kill you slowly. Very true. I've had a similar experience on Christmas Eve where we didn't call a patient, but um, the family came in, patient was in a bad state. They ended up signing a DNR, luckily. But that patient ended up passing like like that morning. So she would have been a code if they didn't sign a DNR, which luckily, thank God, they did. But they were kind of very iffy on signing DNR. So the physician came to talk to them like three times. And then they were finally okay with, you know, them signing it. Because the lady was like on BiPAP. She was like uh, withholding CO2 and just, we knew we were going to have to intubate her. But the family didn't want to intubate. And it was one of those like DNRs where it's like a partial where it's like, do everything you can except for intubating compression. So it was like meds only. Yeah. So it's like, you know, we come and do so much with meds and we're going to have to intubate. And you would you rather have her, you know, choke on her own breath? And we just keep giving meds that really aren't going to help anything. Or if I just get a DNR and make it comfortable. And they end up signing it, thank God. DNR. Well, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to have bad shifts, guys. Just, you know, try to get through them. Try to talk to somebody because, you know, it's, it's hard. And it's a very stressful, very stressful career. And it's good to find somebody too, which dives into the next one, which is talk to your coworkers. And in this aspect that we're talking about, it's nice to have maybe people outside of work or coworkers that you could talk to. And maybe you shouldn't dwell on the situation, but you could talk things out and they could help you feel better or they could help you figure out how you feel emotionally or give you advice if they're like older nurses. Yeah, very true because they went through the same situations you have. You know, they've had codes. They've seen people die, and they've had the same emotions that, that you have. Um, me, I didn't really start to get to know my unit probably until like maybe, I don't know, about seven or eight, or eight months until I finally got comfortable with doing things myself. Then I got, got comfortable with like, you know, helping others because I don't want to go help if I don't know what I'm doing. So that kind of me knowing what I'm doing kind of opened me up to, I guess, socialize more. And then we had some really good group, group dynamics. Like I know some nurses struggled in our unit because, you know, the group dynamics were poor. But when I first started started there, we had like half our staff was the nurses. So everyone was still trying to figure their own steps out. And then after a few months, we then we actually bonded together. We're like, hey, because we all started together. So we kind of knew each other, but we never really talked. And then, we're, and then we just, once everybody, kind of, everybody figured out their routine, figured out how to do things, then we kind of had more more time to socialize. Then we kind of socialized and we kind of worked together. Group dynamics has to be good. Okay. I feel like that could make or break the unit. Because if you're having a, a hard shift and your coworker isn't, you know, you, they're more inclined to help you out if you guys socialize, if you, if you guys are buddies and, and friends. So trying to make make some, you know, friends on a unit because we need some happiness. In, you know, it's not just death in the hospital. We need some time to socialize and, and you know, goof around, as, you know, to a certain extent and have some fun because that's a good way to de- de-stress. You know, you have a busy night, but if someone, you know, cracks a joke while you're turning a patient or washing them up, you know, that makes your day so, day so much better. But you know, it sucks though mm-hmm. when we're, when you do it, and you have to maintain professionality at work because we need that outlet to just laugh a little bit. But sometimes we feel guilty that we can't because like there's literally family members looking around like, are you gonna crack a joke when somebody's life is in danger? Like that makes you look so bad. Well, of course I'm gonna do when the family's there. I know, that's why like it's not black and white, but it's Mm -hmm. good to kind of, you know, nurse the station, sneak one in, whatever. Yeah, yeah, true. And we have a nurse have a different sense of humor. You know, you joke around differently. I feel like, but like I said, if you are open to socialize and you bond you and you have some friends, you're more open for conversation. You're more open to talk about stuff. You're more stressed. If, like if you're close with somebody, you're more likely to joke around with them because you gotta you kind of understand each other's humors. Yeah, and that that all builds like synergy. And we had it like last year with our unit before there was that turnover rate. Like we used to have a time where like we used to just knock each other's baths mm-hmm. out. Like one person's doing a bath, I come in there, I help. I'm doing the next one, and we just kind of like did tasks almost together when we had time. Right. And that makes such a difference when it, when it comes to your coworkers. Another great one when it comes to talking to them is creating that relationship, grab some breakfast beers or grab beers after your 
seven a to seven p shift just bond and talk your little problems out and crack a joke or talk some shit like that's all good you're building that relationship that could help you in the work environment yeah and it's fun too you know beers and food can't go wrong with that mm-hmm. it, it just depends how the the demographics of the nurses are too because sometimes you'll have a unit that's very very young and then very very old or just completely dissected mm-hmm. and then you it that dynamic is kind of lost. It just yeah. depends on personalities. True. That's very true. That's a good point. Let's go for the next one here. So learn to prioritize. And that one just all comes within time. Like you're not going to prioritize right away. And that's why I kind of vouch for med search sometimes to go learn that. And you could go to the ICU if you want to. Like we're not stopping you. I'm not stopping you. It's not a bad idea. But when... When you're a med surge nurse, you're juggling your six peeps and you're just figuring out so much when it comes to what should I do first or I got to do meds or your ABC start coming into place and you start learning delegation. Those are all awesome things when you start moving from that to like critical care where you're just like focused on this one or one or two people. Yeah, I believe you should learn to prioritize probably an orientation to where it should definitely start because we don't really have our own set schedule because we're still still new, we don't know what to do exactly. So I feel like the best way to learn prioritization is your like your instructor, see how they prioritize and copy kind of their routine. If you have multiple, you know, um, nursing instructors that are that are teaching you, you know, take a look at all of them how they how they plan differently, who does what first and what and why, and then you could combine it and make it your own, or you just copy someone's and you can always add to it later. That or yeah, ask them how they're doing things. Or start with like a patient or two when you're building up your, what is it called, schedule, mm. roster, what, what we call these, your patient list, right? It depends what kind of unit you're working on. Take a patient or two instead of the full, full load and very dive in, figure out what you should be doing to have an effective shift. Like for example, for me, I like after I get report, I don't, I'm not the nurse that like reads beforehand, but after I get report, I go into, I like going into the pulmonary notes. They have an awesome setup where I just kind of figure out why he came, what's going on on a like problems list, what are we going to do for this next like 12 hours and just kind of run with it. Then I'll check my orders and then everything else I could just follow up, read, read the rest of the notes. I could figure out the marts, not a big deal. Sometimes I'll write down the mart times just so I don't forget. But it's just getting into the groove of how you like doing things and prioritizing that, right? Like... You getting into the room and if you're in the ICU and you have drips, well, after you get a report, maybe you want to go in there and make sure your tubing is all good. It's not going to run dry. Order what bags you need to. So priority changes based on where what unit you're in, but you should cultivate towards what works for you. Exactly. You should find a way you like doing things. Because if you just steal someone's plan, you might see that you know, you're dragging on one thing or you might see that you like doing one thing over the other. And that's kind of where you got to mold it to yourself. What I personally like to do is I like to get my report to find out what exactly happened that day. And then instead of looking at notes like you do, I usually look at my MAR and the labs. Okay. Just to see, you know, because the MAR, I feel like it gives me an idea of what the patients are for. Like if they're on uh, low pressure or hydrology, obviously they're probably hypertension, you know, might, might be here. And also that gives me a chance to see if like, like the monitor vitals are like stocks, like 160s. I'm not as worried about it because I see they have hydrology and I'm going to give that like within the hour. See, you work at you work at a cardiovascular unit dominantly, so those things benefit you because you could look at meds and paint the picture because you already kind of know the problem list that there. But for a general unit, it's like they're on antidepressants randomly and they're getting random meds, and you're just like, what the heck? So like in my case, it's harder, and I don't rely on the MAR as much as you. Yeah, true. Cool. true. Yeah, same with like like I look at my labs too early on because most people that come in are in LASIK drip. So if I see that the uh, potassium is like four, mag is like two, yeah, they're still within normal limits, but they're on a, you know, LASIK drip, those are probably going to drop. And so you're, those, being, you're being more proactive yeah, then. Yeah, so if they haven't had lab checks since, you know, noon and now it's seven o'clock, I'm probably going to check the labs right after I assess the, assess the patient. You know, so like I said, I do report and I do the MAR in my labs and I also kind of plan a little bit, like what, what I'm going to do, kind of most part, should I draw some blood, you know, when I go in there. Then I actually go to assess the patient, you know, talk to them, what's going on, and kind of get their opinion, see if they know what they're there for. And then I kind of give them their meds, do the, do the whole spiel, do the jazz. And then I look at notes t- more towards after I already did on the hands-on stuff. And when it comes to like like drawing those electrolytes, like sometimes, you know, the potassium's low. They gave the 40 of, you know, 
potassium, MEQ, and you could draw it in four hours or you could just wait till the morning. It depends on your assessment and what you think the patient needs or if you think they're fine, then they don't need it. So, dude, nursing is not black and white, yeah. man. You're kind of, you're not running the show, but you technically are in a way. It just depends how much autonomy your hospital gives you. Right. But make the right decision. Yeah. I, I always say, if you're not sure if you do it or not, you should just do it anyways. Like if you're not sure if you draw labs or not, just draw them. You know, it's not going to hurt the patient if you draw labs. Unless yeah. you know, anemic or, you know, have a super low hemoglobin and just draw labs every two hours for fun just to make sure everything's completely fine all the time. You know, being that, anal about it. No one has know. time to be yeah, doing that. We're not going to have time to do that anyways. Yeah. So um, I guess the next one is self-care. You know, you got to take self-care. You got to be a happy, healthy nurse. And we dr- we drill this into you guys. So here's another session of self-care. Yeah. Let's go. It's very important. You know, you have to because you make sure you got to make sure you get enough sleep. Like we said, the six pillars, one of them was sleep, right? Because if you're t- coming into work tired and groggy and late because you're not waking up, you're not getting enough sleep, nobody wants to see that stuff. That's going to be me today, guys. I haven't slept enough for the past couple days. Be a groggy nurse. Yeah, man, I feel it might be me today too, but I should be getting enough sleep tomorrow. But I'll be okay. I'll just slam my, I'll just slam my coffee. And I'll be okay. Maybe take a massage chair nap a little bit later. But yeah, self-care is really important. You know, you don't want to... If you neglect self-care, you're going to dread coming to work. You're going to get sick more often. You're going to be coughing, sniffling, and just going to be not fun to talk to. And then, especially for your new guy nurses, if you're not sharp and on the ball, you're going to be miss more things than somebody that's like an experienced nurse that's been tired for a long time, but they already know what to do. You know, So they're not going to miss it because they're kind of hardwired to do these things in a certain, certain way. And you're all going to... That's why um, retention is so, so so bad. 22% of nurses you know, quit in their first year. And that's majority, a lot of it has to do with self-care because they're stressed at work and they don't know how to manage their stress. They have nobody to talk to or they don't know how, yeah, like how to manage it. You could work your stress out. You go to the gym, you know, eat healthy. Just have a healthier, healthier mind. Just try to de-stress some way, one way or another, by sleep or by working out or something. And learn how to like unplug from your problems and like leave them to the side. Meaning like don't come in and already be like this negative energy vampire that like sucks people down because there's people like that, man. And then like this whole unit is just this low energy environment like you don't want to like interact as much and the patient's already like the energy is very very not depressing but you really have to have a good attitude and it's like grit it's like mental stamina to withstand what you're going through and then catch yourself when you're going into these negative phases or catch yourself about self-care and like figure out what you're not doing Mm -hmm. are you not sleeping enough are you not eating enough night are you a night shift nurse and you need to like figure out your sleep hygiene are you not exercising enough? Are you snacking too much on your shift? And now you're, it's just, dude, self-awareness, man, and figuring out what your body needs. Right. Or even are you bringing that, are you bringing that stress home? Because work stresses us out, but we got to leave that stress there. We can't come home with it because that stress and, you know, that mistake at work or that stressful patient cannot be in your head while you're home because then you can never relax. You're always, you know, in the fight, fight and flight response, like we said last episode or a few episodes ago, and that's not a healthy way to live. That's you're not gonna have fun outside of work either. You're gonna start stop doing your hobby. You're gonna be sitting at home and not doing anything. You're gonna eventually get depressed just because this stress of is, is over, over is overwhelming you, and now you're bringing it home and you're just thinking about the work. There has been times where I've been stressed for the shift ahead, where I've had a bad shift and I'll come to work again, and I'm thinking about that that shift. But that doesn't happen very often. Usually, I just forget it. I'm just like, whatever shit happened, I'll deal with whatever comes to me tomorrow. But it's also the stress that's in that 12 hour shift because you know how we talk about the stress response and chronic stress like if you're not managing yourself not even outside but now inside of the hospital for 12 hours three times a week that's just going to put a toll on your body bro mm-hmm. you dumping out epinephrine and glucose to your body from the fight or flight response three times a week for 12 hours is freaking stressful yeah that's not good for you and you could catch yourself too sometimes i don't know did you ever like go to work and have like a little list of things you want to get done like order something or like little notes or something for the podcast and you can't concentrate because your brain is just like in an anxious state and you're just constantly catching on to thoughts and you can't like there's no focus right or just pissed off and want to do anything else you know it does happen every time i'm just like you know what fuck it i don't care i'm not gonna do it no i'm not saying like in patient care wise but you don't have to someone that i would do extra well sometimes i do because you know people gotta get the message across you know Mm -hmm. but yeah but you know gotta do your thing Probably the last one. So, so nurses, you know, take care of yourself outside of outside of hospital, or outside of clinic or whatever. Yeah. Probably the last one is listen to your patients. Like, yeah, we're supposed to. It's part of holistic care. Listen to your patients, but I'm talking about more like asking what they did for a living or ha- trying to have a conversation with them. 
because there been, there creating been a relationship. Yeah, there have been times where I had a you know really bad shift, but then I had one patient that I decided, randomly decided to have a conversation with, and you know he made me laugh. He told me about his life, and I'm like, damn, this guy's been through a lot. Like respect, you know, and kind of made my day go by a little bit better because I got to know my patient, kind of his background, what he what he did for a living. And sometimes they're just interesting. Like some people are like stockbrokers, or they do these, these random jobs that that you know you never heard about. Like I had a patient that flew to like Pakistan or somewhere in the Middle East to work on their oil fields. I was like, holy shit. He's like, he's like, yeah, man, I used to do it four months out of the year, made enough money where I was off for six months out of the year, and then I would do random stuff for an extra two months. That's and cool. I was like, damn, no way. He's like, yeah, it used to be good money back then, you know? And it, that was so cool. And you're just like, damn. And you keep asking me this question, you can find out more, and you're just like, holy shit. Like, it's, it's, it's just cool. creating a relationship with these people where they appreciate you out. Yeah. Like, it's not only that they appreciate you, it's like you appreciate them, and you kind of, it's more, I guess, more compassion instead of just having another patient. It's more of like a, another person it's you know? it's not treating that person as like a client mm, right true. just like hey i'm here i'm taking care of you it's just you enjoying the moment with them type of thing and, and making them escape the reality that they're maybe sick or what they're going through because yeah. it helps them you know yeah that's true and a lot of times if you get to start talking to them you know they know their disease process a lot better than you especially if they have like chf for the past seven years like they're gonna be at top of their meds they're gonna know be like hey i feel like i have a lot of fluid on me you know, because I'm trying to breathe a little different. My feet, see my feet getting swollen. And you're like, oh, so, you know, CHF leads to swollen feet and shorts of breath. And you just found that out from the patient. You might have not known that, but the patient told you because they've had it for seven years. He's like, and yeah, and the patient can be like, usually I take 40 of Lasix, but for some reason they gave me 20. I came in yesterday, I mean, there's a mistake. And you're like, Damn. yeah, maybe you should get some more Lasix. Maybe I should bring it up. You know, and you kind of learn from the patient and it's pretty cool. Or sometimes back to those patients where, where they say, yeah, I know, I know. But then when you really ask them a few questions, they don't know what the hell's going on. And you're, you're just like, all right, this is my time to educate. You have to assess mm. the education, yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. And also when it comes to listening to your patient, like ask them different questions that will like give a little background or like why they came from. Because like sometimes you could ask a patient about like anxiety, let's just say, and you could help them with their little problem or help them realize things and you know, try to calm him down. I had a lady that literally brought up a memory and then just started crying. Like she has a very high emotional pain body where a memory literally sparks all this emotion. I tried to help her talk through it and she was so appreciative afterwards. And she's like, good luck in San Diego because I was telling her about that. So just, yeah, just vibe with the people that you're like, that you're taking care of. Of course, there's the patients that are, in our case, intubated or sick or, there's people that are just miserable. They're they're there and they're still not grateful. They're still freaking miserable. Like you have those people and you just just got to do your job while they're, you know they're there. Yeah, and even when they're intubated, especially when they're intubated, like you might think this person speaks English, and hey, he hasn't been following commands for the past three days. And family comes in, and you you'd be like talk to the family and like, does he speak English? Oh, he doesn't speak English. Well, no shade has been following commands because he doesn't speak English. Like hey, can you tell him to you know open his eyes? They speak in their, in their native tongue, opens their eye, opens his eyes. You know, tell him to grab, grab my hand. They, they tell him in Spanish or in French or whatever, and he, he grabs your hand. You know, the problem wasn't that he has a neurological defini- deficit. The, the problem was he didn't know what the hell you were saying. Yeah. So you kind of got to get to know, know your patient like that as well. It's all holistic. Mm-hmm. What do you think about wrapping this one up soon? Wrap it, it up. Like past 40 minutes. Wrap it up. So you're wrapping up. Christmas is coming up too. Christmas is coming up. Still got those gifts, right? For Dan? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, we do. So today's episode, we touched about standing versus sitting. We think it's not worth getting the standing desk. Just move around and crank up your physical activity. Take a 10, five minute break in between that hour. Do some stuff. And if you are already active, power to you. And new grad nurses, learn to jump in, immerse yourself completely in nursing and just fall in love with learning fall in love with mistakes because they will happen and just grow grow and learn spread your wings and let us know how it goes yeah definitely last more than one year you know don't quit after one year one year you're just getting your feet wet with any kind of job and also someone asked me on instagram how long does it take for you to be comfortable as a nurse and my response was two years two years because that first year you're so focused on tasks and then you start finally figuring out, okay, well, COPD, you know what's going to happen. So you stop being anal about that and you start focusing holistically on, okay, this is the plan of care with him. This is how it's going to go down. Hey, 
how come this COPD patient doesn't have any steroids? Maybe they could benefit from some. So you start thinking critically and outside of the box because you're starting to group what happens with specific diagnosis sometimes. Yep, I feel I think two years for the basics of nursing. But I mean, I'm still uncomfortable with certain things that I don't see every day. Like if I get a kidney transplant, I'm still looking at it in the book. Like, hey, how, what, what, what do I do? Because you got to do like the hour by hour urine um, replacement. So whatever the first person pees out, you, you put it back in their oh, like, boluses, right. yeah. Or through like the hour, because you do every hour. So whatever they pee out an hour, you put back in them in, in an hour. Pump. Okay. Yeah, so it's like, you know, things like that where you still got to like learn as, as you go. Because I got my standard patients that I know how to take care of, but the new ones that come in, you know, I don't know how to do them all the time exactly. So I guess the tips for that we have for you guys is you all know everything as a first first year nurse. A bad shift does not make you a bad nurse. Talk to your coworkers, bond with them, socialize, have a good good cohort, a good work environment. Learn to prioritize. That was going to take a little bit, but at least get some kind of a basic from your orientation nurse. And then self care, it's going to must. You got to do it inside of work, outside of work, and listen to your patients. Some cool stories. And we hope these tips help you guys. We'll see you guys next week. And next week, our podcast, or no, no, in two weeks, our podcast is going to take a little bit of a transformation because we are going to go virtual. Virtual. So me and Peter won't be able to touch fingers anymore. Wait, money, maybe we'll get a standing desk. Over yeah. there? Maybe we'll I'm see. not upgrading a standing <laughs> desk. I'll, I was already like picky um, in San Diego. I'm like, hey, do you, mind, do you mind if you upgrade the chair? That's what I call, called them and told mm-hmm. them. So What'd I think say? that's fine. So I think when I go there, I'll purchase a chair and they'll write it off or something. Okay. Because I told them, like, dude, it's a plastic chair. I'm going to sit a lot because I'm going to be hustling. I need a freaking better chair. There you go. And yeah, they change it, you know. They will. Power of asking. Power of asking. The worst questions. Worst thing they could have said is no. Yeah. All right, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Later.